a kind of long-standing interest over the last few years in um, genetics and the relationship between race and genetics and then also the relationship between those things and kinship. So a few years ago, I was working with my colleague Jeanette Edwards at Manchester on a, a project uh, called The Public Understanding of Genetics, which was mainly focused around her work on um, reproductive technologies and so on, but which had an, an element of it that was interested in questions of race and national identity and how these things entered into uh, ideas about kinship. And then at the moment I'm running um, a project about genomics and race mixture in Latin America, which is a kind of science studies project looking at um, how scientists get at um, <coughs> ideas about mixture and racial ancestry through genetic technologies. And I'm going to mention that's in, the, in process and the fieldwork is being done as I speak by uh, some postdocs in Latin America. So I'm just going to mention that briefly en route. Um, and most of the stuff that I'm going to talk about comes out of, the, uh, of, of earlier, that earlier project and stuff that's uh, happened sort of since then. So um, I'll start with the idea that, um, a sort of common idea, that since the advent of DNA sequencing and various different biotechnological innovations, in vitro fertilization, cloning, uh, biobanks, genetic databases, and so on, that we've entered into an era of biologization, geneticization, biosociality, biological citizenship, etc., um, in which all these things, uh, well, in which things like, sorry, identity, kinship, uh, belonging of various different kinds, and ideas about well-being and health, are increasingly being imagined. Um, experienced and spoken about through a discourse of biology or what um, Sarah Franklin's called life itself, the sort of the molecule or um, the DNA uh, base. Um, now, often there's a kind of implication uh, which is most obvious in the kind of popular press, I suppose, that this will lead to uh, greater determinism that somehow notions of belonging and identity and so on will be um, thought about in terms of a biological determinism. Um, and it's obviously true that while biology and, and genetics are uh, becoming sort of pervasive, a pervasive discourse, although I don't think it's necessarily true that um, discourse, that social life now is any more biologised than it was in the late 19th century or early 20th century, for example, in the era of scientific racism and eugenics and so on. So while it's true that biology and genetics are becoming pervasive, I think it's also true that their effects are very unpredictable and not necessarily deterministic. And this is because, as various people have noted, such as um, Marilyn Strathern and Sarah Franklin, Paul Rabinow, etc., that biology and life itself are being appropriated in lots of different ways and are being um, cultured, are being made cultural therefore malleable, uh, movable, manipulable, and sellable, commodifiable, enterprised up in uh, Marilyn Strathern's term. So that's sort of widely recognised at one level by various anthropologists, but when people start talking about race, then the mention of the word biology and the word race in the same phrase seems to lead to uh, a certain degree of worry. Um, I suppose not surprisingly, considering the history of the term race. Um, so it's 
when people start talking about race in terms of, and then linking that in any way with genetics or biology, then uh, people start getting worried and the ideas about determinism and that we're leading to a kind of biological de and genetic determinism start re-entering the picture very strongly, I think. Um, but if and I think this is, you know, this is part of the argument that many anthropologists have, have come up with. If biology is now seen as a much more malleable thing, something that is subject to human intervention and can be changed, etc., then it's, no, it's not, not obvious that linking even something like race to biology will necessarily result in um, a deterministic outcome or a kind of um, a morally bad outcome. Um, and, you know, a lot of science studies shows us how indeterminate the process of science itself is. Uh, and especially something like biology, a life science, which is um, uh, subject to all kinds of processes of interpretation and um, discursive construction and so on. Uh, therefore, I, my view is that biology entering even to, into areas like race still produces very diverse effects. Um, and I want to get at this by looking at race and kinship together to try and show how, um, how uh, technologies around kinship and the way that kinship uh, interacts with ideas about race um, produces these kinds of diverse and unpredictable and contradictory and ambivalent effects. Now, race and kinship are realms that generally speaking, aren't often brought into conjunction with each other. So kinship is one set of studies about people and families. Race tends to be another set of studies about labour markets, politics, um, uh, hierarchies, uh, exploitation, inequality, and so forth. Um, but more recently, people have been trying to bring these two realms into conjunction with each other, and I think... That, especially when you look at how kinship is being recast through um, ideas about genetics and biotechnology and so on, it becomes increasingly interesting. Um, so I bring them together because uh, race, or discourse about race, is, I mean, people often say discourse about race is a discourse about biology. I don't think that's true. It's a discourse about biology and culture, or nature and culture, or some version of that kind of an opposition, which has been around for a long time. Um, and kinship is also about is, is also a mediator. Kinship thinking is also a way of mediating between something called nature and culture in some way, in lots of different ways. So, for me, the family is a key domain for thinking about racial identification. Um, racial identification is often thought of in terms of sort of political movements and political identifications. I think it also is very important that it happens within the family. Um, and people may know Anne Stoller's work about intimacy and race and, and the way that race is constructed and, and so on in intimate domains. Um, so I developed the idea of what I call race-kinship congruity. It's not perhaps the most uh, felicitous of terms, but it's basically the idea that the appearance of a child is explicable, more or less, in terms of its parentage. That When you look, want to explain why a child looks like it does, you make some reference to its parents. And then also, a fortiori, that the racialized appearance of a child is explicable in terms of its racialized parentage, whether that is observed or inferred, assumed. 
Um, so that kind of idea draws on all kinds of things from Aristotle, uh, the idea that in nature, like produces like, that that's a kind of fundamental principle of uh, not just human kinship, but nature. Or Michael Hertzfeld says the idea that physical resemblance, the semiotic property of iconicity, reveals the presence of common blood, predated the popularization of DNA-based metaphors. I, I mean, I put that there partly because I thought the predated thing was such a, uh, a sort of ludicrous understatement when you can, you know, it's been predated yeah, by about 5,000 years, yes. Um, or more recent stuff from Latin America, Latin American sayings such as de tal palo tales astilla, literally from such a tree, such a splinter, which is something that people say about children uh, when they're relating them usually to their father, but also their mother. Or hijo de tigre sale pintado, the son of a tiger comes out striped, uh, is another way of talking about that somehow, you know, you whatever your parents had, you will somehow also uh, manifest those things in some way. And then English phrases which are also equally gendered, like father, like son, or a child being a chip off the old block, and this kind of thing, uh, are all manifestations of this kind of idea. Now, obviously, one doesn't expect children, or in Western sort of kinship systems, one doesn't expect children to be exactly the same as their parents. So Mr. Thurn's argument was that children are both same and different at the same time. So somehow you can relate children to their parents, but they're not exactly the same, otherwise they'd just be sort of clones. So they're connected to the past, to their parents, but they're also somehow connected to the future, to something unpredictable and new. Um, but you're still trying to sort of explain aspects of the, of the parentage, of, of, of uh, the appearance of the child in terms of its parentage. Um, and even in cases where you have uh, race mixture, which is extremely common in Latin America, uh, you explain the appearance of the child in relation to the mixture that is occurring. So again, children don't look exactly like their mother or exactly like their father. They've got a bit of both, a bit of both sides, um, which is a common way of thinking about these things in cognatic kinship sy systems. Um, in Latin America, one specific um, manifestation of the race kinship connection is an interesting phrase, y tu abuela donde esta, which is actually um, the title of a poem that was written by a Puerto Rican poet um, in the 40s, I think, something like that. But it is a kind of common phrase used in many areas. Literally, it means, and, where you're, and what about your grandmother? What about, where's she? And it's a phrase used when somebody is uh, being rude or pejorative about uh, black or indigenous people in general. But if you look at them, you can kind of see that they've obviously got, you know, that somewhere up the line, their parents or their grandparents must, were, must have been black or indigenous. You can see it in their face and their, their, their color and so on. So you can say to them, well, what about your grandmother then? Uh, where's she? So, you know, you too are, are mixed or you have some blackness or indigenousness about you, so you shouldn't be slagging off black and indigenous people. And again, I mean, just to bring out this theme, which I'm going to pick up later on, it's gendered, right? It's about your, your abuela, your grandmother. It's not about your grandfather here. Um, so it's making reference to a particular history of Latin American race mixture, which I'll, I'll talk about a bit later. Okay, let me now just make some brief comments about the changing connections between race and kinship. And I'm just going to take a couple of little points here. This isn't a comprehensive overview. So if we you know, think about the late 19th century uh, era of um, <coughs> scientific racism and racial typology and so on, 
where there are ideas of strict lineality um, and as assumptions of race kinship congruity, which are um, bounded by notions of racial purity. That is to say that white people should have white children, black people should have black children, Asian people should have Asian children, there shouldn't be any mixture, and that's seen as bad, etc., etc. So a very sort of lineal and highly policed notion of race kinship congruity. These things m should match and must match, and if they didn't, that was a big problem uh, and was seen as morally and physically bad. Um, <coughs> and... Um, I suppose worth mentioning here that you know mixed nations like Latin America at this period of time had to work around this dominant ideology that was coming out of Europe and North America, especially Anglo-Saxon Europe, um, because they were very mixed nations. So they had to sort of work around this this uh, this dominant ideology that said the mixture was bad, and they did this partly by evading biology, or rather by seeing biology as improvable, as something that could be manipulated so that you could improve the racial stock of your nations by uh, undertaking programs of social hygiene, as they called it. Uh, education, uh, sanitation, and so on. And, so on. <clears throat> and therefore improve the biology of your nations, a very Lamarckian um, uh, discourse. Um, okay, so then we jump very radically to sort of you know, late 20th century, where... Um, it's often said that the kind of cultural racism has taken over. That is to say, the people don't talk about race or they don't talk about biology explicitly. They talk about culture. And indeed, when I ask my undergraduate students, you know, what does race mean to you? They very often t talk in terms of culture. And only a couple of them will mention things like appearance or colour or something like that. So there is this kind of discourse about, about culture, which is quite strong. And in that case... One could argue that the congruence of race and, kin and kinship have been undone. If difference and belonging are going to be defined in cultural terms, what you do, uh, what, you, uh, what you eat, uh, your religion and so on, then it shouldn't matter who your procreative partner is going to be or what your offspring look like in racial terms, in inverted commas. But it's pretty obvious that those things do continue to matter. People do continue to worry about what their children look like and who they're going to marry in terms of appearance and these kinds of things. They're not <coughs> irrelevant. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I think it's clear, and this was something that came out quite strongly from the ethnographies that we did in Britain and Norway and Spain and so on, that people uh, in this project, the Public Understanding of Genetics, that people are thinking about these things about ancestry and appearance and blood and all this sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> specifically in terms of relationships of family and kinship. Uh, and many mixed race people will attest to the fact that, you know, people are very curious about what their parentage is and where they come from and where do you really come from and all this kind of thing. So biology and culture continue to be closely linked in racial thinking as they have been all, all along, and biology has never just, uh, sorry, race has never just been about biology, it's always been about biology and culture, nature and behaviour, and so on. And these things are strongly linked through ideas about kinship. Um, Stuart Hall says that, uh, and he's talking, he's referring here to current concepts of ethnicity, which apparently only talk in terms of culture. He says the articulation of difference with nature, and he glosses that as biology and the genetic, 
is present but is displaced through kinship and marriage. So a sort of explicit reference to biology and genetics and so on isn't necessarily there. People talk in terms of, uh, of uh, intermarriage and kinship relationships and so on. So if we now move to the sort of very late 20th, 20th century, beginning <coughs> 21st century, where we enter into an era in which nature is being destabilised in the kinds of ways that people like Strathern and Franklin have, have described, and Rabinow and so on, where nature begins to kind of fall apart in, in, in terms of its perceived solidity and becomes a subject <coughs> of intervention, etc. Um, what happens? Um, what happens to the congruity or otherwise of race and kinship? Now, at a simple level... The impact of um, what's called genomics, that is to say genetics that's happened since the sequencing of the human genome, that's the term that's used nowadays to refer to that, um, you know, what's happened since then, the, the possibility of sequencing an entire genome. What's happened to race since that, that time is that uh, a debate has emerged about whether race is biologically meaningful or not, again a debate which we thought, as social anthropologists, had been laid to rest many decades ago, but in fact, first of all, was never laid to rest in the physical science, in the life sciences, uh, in the sense that many, many life scientists continue to use concepts of race through the 70s, 80s, 90s, in a fairly unproblematic way, um, and has now re-emerged, because we all know that we're 99.9% similar in our DNA, but that 0.1% contains a lot of difference. That 0.1% contains all the difference in the world between every single human being. So that's a lot of room for manoeuvre. So some um, medics and geneticists argue that the diversity that exists in that 0.1% of the DNA can be structured into things that they don't call necessarily races. They call them sometimes biogeographical ancestry groups. And guess what the biogeographical ancestry groups are? Africans, Asians, Europeans, and Amerindians. I've heard that before somewhere um, in the 18th century. Um, so there is debate about whether or not you can group that diversity into, into medically interesting categories um, uh, that look like race, of biogeographical ancestry. And some people say you can, and some people say you can't. Some people say that there are genetic groupings along these kinds of lines that, that relate to how people metabolise drugs or to whether people are predisposed to certain kinds of uh, diseases and so forth. And other people say, uh, you can't do that. So there's a debate about it. So, you know, there's ambiguity here. There's guys kind of going both ways. It isn't settled. Uh, whether it will ever be settled, I don't know. So... In other technologies, which are ones that I want to look at, um, which, are kinship, which are sort of technologies around kinship, some of them biotechnologies, some of them bureaucratic technologies, what happens? And the, my argument is that the same kind of ambiguity prevails, where you have very diverse effects going on, in which race is kind of reified and stabilised and solidified on the one hand, and on the other hand is destabilised and sort of taken apart and challenged on the, uh, on the other. So the first thing I'm going to look at is ancestry testing, which I'm sure you've seen you know, bits of on the telly or on the, on the internet. Uh, these are the tests where you take a swab from the inside of your cheek and you send them off to uh, a company. Uh, you pay three, four hundred dollars or so, and they then t write back and tell you what, who you're at or where your ancestors came from. Um, and often, especially in the United States, that is phrased in racial terms. 
you know, whether they're African or European or uh, Amerindian or a Asian and so, forth, so forth. So if you look on the websites of some of these firms, Ancestry.com, for example, says, you know, you find slightly different things. These tests do not tell you which ethnic tribe you may belong to, whatever that means. But, they say, the tests allow you to discover these genealogical answers by comparing yourself to others who are proven to fall within certain genealogical characteristics. Now, that's a kind of very mealy-mouthed way of saying, well, we can link you to somebody else who we know is an African because they live in Africa and they have certain genetic markers which you also have. So race kind of is smuggled in through the back door, uh, although they don't actually say it. In fact, they deny it. DNA print is much more straightforward. These tests can determine with confidence to which of the major biogeographical ancestry groups, and there they are, a person belongs, as well as the relative percentages in case of ad admixed peoples. So your test will tell you that you are 36% Amerindian, five, whatever, 40% African, etc. Um, easy DNA. DNA testing for ancestry analysis can help you discover your unique geographical and racial heritage through this testing, etc. Um, so, on the one hand, yeah, on the one hand, you find these, you know, quite a strong sort of biologization of race here. Um, the testing is phrased in terms of making connections with particular individuals, so an ancestor somewhere, uh, but that individual is talked about in what are very clearly racial terms, even if the word race isn't used, and is, you know, they talk about um, biogeographical ancestry groups. Um, so the logic of a race-kinship congruity is evoked here, often in quite a lineal form, because the tests that they do, they do different kinds of tests. One of them will trace your mitochondrial DNA. Mitochondrial DNA is DNA you inherit only from your mother, so it's passed through the maternal line. So you can trace, by looking at that particular kind of DNA and looking at the markers on it, you can trace a line that leads right up to your distant maternal ancestors. Or you can look at the genetic markers on the Y chromosome, which you only inherit from your father, which men inherit from their father. So you can, for a man anyway, test your, uh, your paternal line, but it's completely unilineal. So to, of all your ancestors, it just traces out these two particular lines. And then there are other tests which test what's called your autosomal DNA, which, uh, which, doesn't, which, which looks at all, at all your inherit inheritance from all your different ancestors. So, but the most common ones are these unilineal ones that look at either your maternal or paternal uh, ancestry um, genealogies, rather. So they produce these very sort of lineal versions of, of where you came from um, in many cases. So on the one hand, this race-kinship congruity is reinforced. Um, on the other hand, it's destabilized in lots of different ways. So, for example, one um, study reported the case of a man in the U.S. whose ancestry test, which was done by Oxford ancestors, said that he was a direct descendant of Genghis Khan. So the Mongolian embassy was set to throw him a party and welcome him into the sort of clan uh, until Family Tree DNA, a different company, said that, they, according to their analysis, no such link existed. So they cancelled the party and so on, uh, you know. Um, but the point is partly there that you can have different interpretations of the same data. The science itself is very indeterminate. Uh, and this is partly because the genetic markers they use 
are not confined to particular regions of the world. They may be more common in Africa than they are in other areas, but you will find them in many areas. So the fact that you have one of those markers doesn't necessarily mean that you come from Africa or a particular... Sorry, that your ancestors came from Africa or somewhere else in Africa. They might accidentally have been a European who also had that same marker. So it's, it's an indeterminate science which makes it, you know, can determine with confidence to which of the major ge geographies is very unlikely at the individual level. There's all kinds of, uh, of errors involved here. Um, okay, another example is from a, t a TV documentary uh, aired on, the, on Channel 4 in, the, in 2000 called The Difference, which was all about human difference and was looking at, at a genetic difference and so on as well. And at the beginning of the program, they picked out four men who were clearly chosen to represent white European, black African, uh, Japanese and South Asian populations. And they were then given DNA tests that traced their paternal lines only through the Y chromosome. And they had them all four sitting in the room and they told the black man that he shared uh, a quite recent European ancestor with the white man sitting next to him. That was a great-great-grandfather. Uh, which was traced through the white chromosome. And this produced hilarity and laughter and sort of embarrassment. And the guy, the black man, said, it's not my fault um, that, you know, I had this ancestor. And then in an interview after, the, after that sort of revelation, he said that he'd come to participate in the whole thing, hoping for an affirmation of his Africanness, as he put it. And he added that his African friends would tease him, saying, we always knew you were a black white man anyway he spoke with a very rather cultured English accent and wore a suit and so on. Um, so, you know, he'd gone into this looking for some kind of affirmation of his African ancestors. And the test, far from uh, reinforcing that logic that he was a black man, therefore should have black ancestors, disrupted it using exactly the same language of biology and ancestry and genetic linkage and so forth. And, you know, it, what, the whole process of, of his response to the test was mediated by his hopes and his fears and his relationships with his peers and so forth. And, of course, the fact that they'd chosen one ancestor to link him to a, Europe, to a, a white guy sitting next to him, you know, didn't say anything about all his other ancestors. It was done specifically to produce that effect of shock, you know, that you share that ancestor. Um, Alondra Nelson, who's done some ethnographic work on how people deal with these kinds of ancestry tests, notes that after test results are rendered, root seekers endeavour to translate them from the biological to the biographical, from a pedigree of origins to a satisfying life story. So people appropriate this information in all kinds of different ways. Um, and she and other people have referred to another documentary called Motherland, A Genetic Journey, which was aired on the BBC in 2003, where they took um, 229 British men and women of Afro-Caribbean descent, and or sorry, well, they lived, they lived in the UK of Afro-Caribbean descent, and they then gave them DNA tests, and they followed three people that they chose, who, using the results of these tests, travelled to various different uh, locations in, the, in Africa and the Caribbean, seeking out their ancestral origins. So, for example, one woman um, went to Equatorial Guinea and there was a kind of big reunion with, this, uh, with these people on an island just off the coast of Equatorial Guinea and they welcomed her as a kind of daughter of the tribe and there were tears and um, emotion and all the rest of it. Um, 
And then they made a, a sort of follow-up documentary to this after some people began to question, especially geneticists actually began to question what they'd done here. And there was a kind of debriefing session where these people were informed a little bit more about the genetics of what was going on. And uh, this woman was informed that actually, genetically, they could have gone to Mozambique or to various other areas in Africa um, you know, where it was equally likely that her ancestors might have come from. So obviously that then produced a sort of different set of reactions in her, or disillusionment amongst others. Um, so again, you know, these things are, are unpredictable and can be very destabilizing of, of ideas of sort of lineal connection and so forth. Um, racial ancestry testing in Latin America, which is the subject of the project that uh, I'm currently working on at the moment, um, is also uh, interesting in this respect. So there's labs all over, genetic labs all over Latin America are doing tests on populations trying to work out what their ancestral percentages are. Um, there's a map of the Mexican genome and uh, there's a the molecular portrait of Brazil and various different things going on which we're, we're looking at. Um, and the idea behind all this, I mean, if you're wondering why they're doing it, is that it's supposed to be about public health. It's supposed to be part of a project of... Uh, finding what genetic variants are for various complex disorders like cardiovascular heart disease or diabetes or various different things, uh, which, you know, I mean, that's, I'm not, all I'm saying when I, I'm saying that in a slightly dismissive way, all I'm saying is that there's a big uh, gap between doing all this ancestry testing and actually localising these genetic variants in a way which could really affect public health policies. Uh, there's a lot of science still to go before they manage to localise these things. Meanwhile, they spend a lot of time doing this ancestry testing. So in Brazil, for example, there's been lots of stuff showing, you know, if you take a sample of people, white Brazilians, people who identify as white or would be identified as white by others, actually they have lots of, lots of indigenous and African mitochondrial DNA from their maternal line. Um, and Brazilian geneticists have argued very strongly against the whole concept of race that you can't you know, use that concept because there's such genetic diversity. So quite a few of the gen geneticists say that you know, we can't talk about race, we shouldn't talk about race, there's no genetic evidence for it. On the other hand, quite a lot of the geneticists do use it in a routine way and say, yeah, racially this, racial group this, racial group the other thing. And all of them refer unproblematically to these three biogeographical ancestral groups, Europeans, Africans, and Amerindians. That's constantly being repeated through all the scientific work. And they may not use the term race, but uh, it's, very, it's so close to the way that those terms are popularly used, la raza africana, la raza amerindia, and so on, that uh, it doesn't make much difference that they don't use that term race. Um, so you have, again, you know, unpredictable things going on. On the one hand, they're kind of reaffirming race. On the other hand, they're saying it doesn't exist. Uh, and that people who thought they were white actually have all this kind of indigenous and African ancestry too. Well, I mean, in a way, as a parenthesis, I suppose, but I think it's interesting, is that they also very commonly produce these strongly gendered narratives about the nation. So, you know, the narratives of, of how Brazil or Colombia or whatever came to be was that European men came across, there were very few European women, European men had, had sex with indigenous women and African women and produced these mestizo, these mixed populations, and that was the kind of the, the, the origin of the nation. And these genetic narratives strongly re reinforced this. So here's a picture painted in 1895, 
by actually a Spanish artist, but in, uh, in Brazil, called The Redemption of Cain. This, I don't know if people know the 18th century, what are called Casta paintings of Mexico and, uh, and, New, uh, and Peru. But this is a kind of latter-day version of these things. So on the left, you have the, the black grandmother. In the middle, you have her lighter-coloured lighter daughter, um, because the grandmother had presumably had sex with a, a white man or a lighter-skinned man. The daughter in the middle has married or had a child with the guy on the right, who's a kind of white Portuguese, Portuguese immigrant, and they've produced a very light-skinned baby. And the grandmother is thanking God that her grandchild has turned out so nice and white. And it's the redemption of Cain because um, one of the explanations, sort of the old explanations about um, blackness or Africanness was that Africans were the descendants of Cain and were a cursed race. So this is the redemption of Cain. So that is an 1895 um, picture which is reproduced in an article in 2000 by the geneticist Sergio Pena and his colleagues in the popular science journal Ciencia Oje. Science Today, um, in which they talk about the, the, the molecular portrait of Brazil. And they're describing all their different genetic findings and so on. And at the end, they talk about precisely this kind of narrative of, of, uh, of, of European men having sex with uh, indigenous and African women. So they're sort of immediately tapping back into some very, very familiar categories, very, very ideologically dominant categories about what the Brazilian nation is or where it came from and so on. Um, at the same time, as Sergio Pena is one of the kind of key guys who's saying race doesn't exist, we shouldn't talk about race, um, we can't use that as a basis for social policy. Okay, let me move now to a different set of technologies. Um, assisted reproductive technologies, which are not genetic technologies, really, but are, biotech are biotechnologies around kinship. And um, here in, the, in, this, in our project on the public understanding of genetics, one of the things we found was that the explicitly racial matching of gametes was quite common. In Spain and Norway, for example, um, it was quite clear that, according to the law, Spanish law, uh, donors should have the maximum phenotypic and immunological similarities with the receiver of the donated gametes, eggs or, or ova. Um, and indeed, one of the people who worked in the Spanish IVF clinics found that you know, they had this sort of their donors and their recipients organised in filing cabinets in sort of brown, uh, black and white. And they were, quite, they were quite excited by the prospect of having an anthropologist there because they said, oh, you can help us organise this in a more sort of scientific fashion. And you're going, no, no, no I can't. Um, and in Norway we found the same kind of thing. It was sort of taken for granted that a white woman would want to have a, a, an ovum or a sperm donated from a, a white man or a woman. In the UK, it's very interesting to see how these guidelines have changed over time. So the Human Fertilisation Embryo Embryology Authority, yes, Embryology Authority, sorry, in 2002, sort of struggling with, the, with this stuff, produces this guideline. Those seeking treatment should not be treated with gametes provided by a donor of a different racial origin unless there are compelling reasons for doing so, that they don't say what those compelling reasons might be. And in some cases, it's, you know, if the clinic wants to make some money, that looks like a pretty compelling reason. In 2003, a new version of the guidelines, the word racial is dropped, because obviously you know, they don't really want to be using that kind of language. Um, 
And in 2007, they drop any kind of guideline about that. They say the main thing is you must avoid harm, harm to anybody, right? To the, to the recipient, the donor, the child, the best interest of the child, etc. But, they say, ethnic information and physical data will nevertheless be collected. Uh, so you have to fill in a questionnaire saying, you know, where you come from and what you look like and things like this. So they're avoiding that language, but at the same time, it's still sort of implicit there. So you have this idea of matching, which is very strong um, and is probably derived in part from adoption policy, where racial and ethnic matching is, is also a very dominant um, uh, social policy in adoption in Europe and the USA. Um, so you have this, you know, that, so there, there you're reinforcing race kinship congruity that white parents should have white kids and black parents black kids and so on, nice, everything nice and clean. But you also get processes of mismatching going on through the, the same technologies. So um, in Israeli clinics, for example, women, and this was a study done by somebody outside of our, uh, of our project called Mikhail Naaman, women fill in a preferred external features form where they say what they want the, the donor of the ovum that they want to get to look like. And generally they would say they wanted somebody who had light skin and looked as, as un-Jewish as possible. Um, and they were getting their eggs from Eastern European um, clinics, so they were kind of, you know, hoping for something uh, uh, along those lines. Now, there's no evidence that anybody took any notice of those forms, you know, in the clinics in Bucharest or wherever. Um, there was no evidence that they sort of said, oh, yes, well, we'll give this woman a nice white uh, egg. But that was the way they thought about it and talked about it. Then in uh, 2003, I think it was... Um, there were some uh, newspaper reports about how Asian women and Middle Eastern women were coming to the UK looking for uh, white eggs, in inverted commas, despite the fact that you had to have a compelling reason on the part of the, of the IVF clinic director to give somebody an egg of a different racial origin, they were able to do that. And it was up to the, you know, it was in the discretion of the, uh, of the clinic director whether he did it or not. Um, so you have this process whereby sort of cons the, the, the commoditization of these technologies and the consumer choice that people are able to exercise disrupts this race kinship congruity. And partly because a family that isn't mixed, right, in inverted commas, can have a, a mixed child. So an Asian woman with an Asian husband can have something that, is, that could be seen as a mixed race child, even though their family isn't mixed. So it's kind of really beginning to upset that race-kinship congruity, that, that, that lineality of family and race. Um, another uh, illustration of this is, the, is the, the, in some of these cases of, of IVF uh, mix-ups that you, know, you see in the press. And one of our uh, PUG team members, Public Understanding of Genetics team members, looked at this uh, one case that was in the press in 2002 when uh, black twins, in inverted commas, were born to a white mother in the UK because a black man's sperm had been used in error in the IVF process and they got mixed up with her eggs and she, was, she gave birth to what were called in the, in the press black twins. And what uh, Kath Tyler noted in the, in the different press coverage of this was on the one hand, you had a whole series of discourses about shock and horror that this was the worst thing that could have happened to this person, to the mother, 
that she should sue the NHS for battery, right? She'd been assaulted by the NHS by being forced to have these black children, um, and so on. So it was like shock horror. And this was, you know, the red top press, as one can imagine, mostly. So that was, you know, the very strongly the idea that it was the worst thing that happened was that a white woman could suddenly have black, you know, black kids, even though they weren't, you know, they were mixed race kids, really. On the other hand, other sections of the press were much more sympathetic and uh, highlighted the fact that the woman herself declared herself to be attached to these children, despite, in inverted commas, the fact that they were black, and that legally she was the mother because she'd given birth to them. So by British law, the woman who actually gives birth to a child is the legal mother, so this was considered to be important and to create a bond between her and the child, and so on. Um, and at that time, it wasn't clear what had exactly had gone wrong in, in, in this case. Um, in the end, the courts decided for the mother, that, that she should be the mother uh, and that her husband would have to adopt the children and the black man who had donated the sperm and whose sperm had been used in error was kind of cut out of the, of the whole thing. Um, and so in the end, that sort of you know, fractured the race kinship congruity because you had white parents with mixed race kids. And interestingly, when Kath Tyler started asking people she was doing her fieldwork in Leicester at the time, what people thought about this and how they reacted to it, quite a lot of her, especially Asian uh, informants, talked about the throwback, the idea of the throwback, the idea that, you know, in India, you could have a family and suddenly a very black child would sort of pop up unexpectedly because, you know, way back somewhere, there'd been some very dark-skinned parents. So that was the way they sometimes sort of talked about that, was, oh, yeah, well, we can sort of recognise that these things, because, you know... In the old days, we remember these cases of the throwback and so on. Um, which is, again, a very sort of ambivalent sort of term, because on the one hand, um, it, it reiterates race-kinship con race congruity because it's using the classic race-kinship calculus to think about the exception. Oh, yeah, we can explain this exception in terms of the kind of processes we already know about. And on the other hand, it points to the extreme unpredictability of race, of racialized kinship at the margins. You know, weird things can happen that you don't expect, even if you know that, say, the, 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 the processes that are operating are the processes that you know about and are familiar with, they can produce unexpected results. And the last technology I want to talk about is, a tran is transnational adoption, or rather transracial adoption, um, which is a kind of bureaucratic kinship technology. Um, which brings out even more strongly this, this, the, these cases in which uh, white usually white parents have non-white children in their families. So in adoption, as I said before, nationally, the general sort of social policy, although it's not enshrined in law, but the general policy is, among social workers, is that you should have racial and ethnic matching in adoption, so that black kids get placed with black families, mixed-race kids with black or mixed-race families, and so on, and this is seen to be in the best interest of the child. Uh, and that kind of idea, as I said, influenced IVF um, uh, processes as well quite strongly. But transnational adoption very commonly breaks with that congruity because a, a great deal of transnational adoption is uh, of European and North American middle-class white parents adopting children from Latin America, China, Korea, Africa, Haiti, and so on. Now, increasingly, Russia and Eastern Europe are... Uh, providing the, the children that go into these transnational adoption uh, arrangements. And it's interesting that lots of parents prefer that 
to prefer to have children that come from there because they look more similar to themselves. Anyway, um, two of the, work, of the people who worked in our, in our project, Signa Howell and Dinah Marri, uh, studied these transnational adoption cases. Um, Signa Howell has published a lot of stuff about this. Um, and what they were interested in was how, how do these families work? How do people handle this fact of physical difference and familial closeness? And what they found, again, was this ambivalence, this things, contradictory things happening at the same time. On the one hand, they found denial of race, that people just sort of try to ignore the fact that, these people, that their children looked completely different from themselves and might be identified on the streets as immigrants and so on. Um, uh, in, in Norway, this was, and in Norway and Spain, I should say, this, this, these studies took place. Um, so instead, culture is, is stressed, and the children, in Signa Howell's term, are transubstantiated. That is to say, their internal essence is, uh, is, is thought to have undergone a sort of a fundamental process of change through what a process she calls kinning, the making them into sort of family, making them into good little Norwegians who eat the right kind of food and learn to ski and do all those kinds of things. Um, so you sort of create a match between the essence of your child and your essence, even though physically you look completely unlike each other. And there are big differences between immigrants and how immigrants are seen and the children of immigrants who are Norwegian and ski and all the rest of it as well and transnationally adopted children. They're seen as, as very different kinds of people. On the other hand, somehow the fact of that physical difference, it won't go away. It can't go away. It's ineradicable at some level. And what, the way that people handle it is to talk about um, the fact that their children have to get in touch with their roots, their cultural roots, mind you. So they have these sort of homeland events where their children, they get together with, uh, you know, children, parents of a Korean child, a child of Korean origin, will get together with other parents and families who have children from Korea, and they will cook Korean food and wear Korean clothes and so on. And there, increasingly there are these homeland tours where the families will go back to China uh, or Latin America or Haiti or around, uh, wherever it happens to be and sort of re-engage with the, the culture of the child. Often the children are not interested in this process. Often the children, when they get to China or wherever, think, this has got nothing to do with me. I don't know who these people are or anything. It's the parents who really want to do this. Um, and in a way what they're doing is sort of trying to argue, I suppose, that their, their transnationally adopted children are sort of mixed race. That they have a bit of the Norwegian and a bit of the, of the Chinese or whatever it happens to be. So in a way, they're trying to sort of apply the logic of, of, of race kinship congruity to, to, to construct their children as, as mixed in some way. Okay, so the conclusion is that... Uh, Race kinship congruity is both is reaffirmed in many ways, but it's also destabilised in these kind of unpredictable sorts of ways. And it's pretty unclear what the outcome of this is going to be. Um, my view is that what, what's happening is we have there are kind of more options available to people for reckoning and imagining things like kinship and race. Now, clearly, those options are strongly constrained by. Uh, a given social context. So, you know, one doesn't make choices about 
whether you want to identify as black or mixed race or white or whatever it happens to be in a way that's sort of completely unconstrained by the fact that there's a racial hierarchy and all the rest of it. So there's a strong constraint around uh, the, what options people will choose, but there are more options out there um, that people can use and work with to create personal narratives, um, something that Charis Thompson has called strategic naturalization. Um, one could also phrase as strategic culturalization and a kind of mixture of the two things that people use culture and nature in strategic ways to create stories about themselves and their families uh, and their origins that they find satisfying or that work for them for particular purposes. I would hazard the guess that assisted reproductive technologies and transnational adoption sort of hold some potential for destabilizing standard notions of kinship. Because although both of those areas work in ways where standard notions of race and racial hierarchy can be re-established, they both somehow also have the potential for creating new sorts of families that really do challenge some of the basic notions of race, kinship, congruity. So I'm going to stick my neck out a bit and say that there is some potential there for destabilizing standard notions of, uh, of race.